Hi, I'm Sarah Kavanaugh, and this is Peaceful Exit. Every episode, we explore death, dying, and grief through stories by authors familiar with the topic. Writers are our translators. They take what is inexpressible, impossible to explain, and they translate it into words on a page. Today, I'm talking with writer Rebecca Wolf. She's been writing since she was 16 when she became a contributor to the popular Chicken Soup series. After that, she started her own well-known personal blog, Girls Gone Child, where she chronicled her journey into motherhood. She was an early mom blogger. She frequently writes about her life for publications like Refinery29, Huffington Post, and Romper. She's also got her own newsletter, The Braid. Today, we're talking about her second book, All of This, A Memoir of Death and Desire. The book is about being on the brink of divorce and then learning her husband has stage four cancer. She gives us a really honest look at marriage, parenthood, cancer, grief, and what it's like to be a widow. Let's get into it. I am looking forward to this conversation. I loved your book. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. What I'd love is some context around why this was such a complicated loss for you. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, um, anyone who's been in a tumultuous marriage and is ready to leave that marriage knows that they've been grieving. I was grieving my marriage and my husband for years. So I think I basically got to the point where I had finished grieving the loss of what I thought I wanted and what I thought we would be and was finally at the point where I was like, okay, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And then, you know, he gets diagnosed literally, it was like days, if not weeks after that conversation, he gets terminally diagnosed. So it was almost as if I just buried our marriage. Now I have to dig us up and figure out how to be the wife that I want to be, that Mm -hmm. I feel like I need to be knowing that I am no longer the wife. I've already told him that I don't want to be the wife. So there was no, it wasn't, it wasn't anything I had to think about. Obviously I was going to be there with him and take care of him and, and, and try to give him as painless and joyful an exit as I possibly could. And I do feel like I was able to do that for him. Mm -hmm. I need to do that for him and for me and for our kids. But once he wasn't here and those four months of between diagnosis and death were excruciating, like they weren't like, oh, this is, you know, he had this wonderful, I mean, it was, it's pancreatic cancer. If anyone is, has experience with it is, I mean, all cancers are terrible, but it's especially excruciating. You don't have a good day. Like there were no good days. It was like terrible. And then it was terrible. And then it was just terrible the whole time. So his death brought relief in that way too, that he was no longer in pain. Uh, and his death brought relief in that I was no longer, you know, I, I could finally bury us, which I had already, you know, was already starting to do. So my feelings were of obviously sadness. I didn't want him to die. I didn't want my kids not to have a father. I mean, obviously that was not any... But I also didn't want to be with him anymore. And yeah. both things can be true. Yes. And when he was no longer here, I got what I wanted, which was not to be with him. Not exactly what I wanted, obviously. But there is that part of it that was like, yes, I don't want to be married anymore. I don't want to co-parent with this person either. So now I don't have to, which is also something you're not allowed to say out loud. Yeah. 
you know, I, I don't know what our co-parenting would have been like after our marriage, but I do have a lot of friends who are in hella situations with their former spouses and co-parents. And I don't know what that experience is like because I never had that. And yeah. it would be false for me to admit that it's easier or harder for me or harder for them. It's there are advantages of my situation. And for me not to admit that is disingenuous. So I feel like it's important to talk honestly about these things and to do so in a way where I don't feel bad about saying that. Because he kind of gave you permission to write this story. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of, he, he did and he didn't. Right. And that's sort of the conversation. It's like, yeah, he knew I was going to write about this because I've literally written about everything that's ever happened to me ever. Even the most mundane shit is like, you know, I dropped a water bottle on my toe or whatever. Like I've, I've been writing about everything. Um, so he knew that I was going to write about this and I, I don't necessarily think that he knew that I was going to write the book that I wrote. So, you know, it's, it's definitely what, what is consent? What, I mean, I wrote a piece recently called what is consent to a ghost? And it was about this idea that like, when someone isn't here to tell their story or their side of the story, is it fair to tell yours? It's a great question. Which is, you know, very valid criticism. And yeah. I, I, I'm very aware of that criticism. I heard quite a bit of it and continue to. I'm really sort of open and receptive to hearing that because I, I get it. And I don't know how to answer that question, except that I think... If you are going to write about a person or an experience with someone who has died and it's complicated and you're writing about your relationship with them in a, in a way that doesn't necessarily paint them as a hero or a perfect husband or person, it's important to do the same for yourself. So for mm-hmm. me, I knew that if I was going to write the truth about our marriage, about my relationship with him, about who he was to me, that I needed to also write about my flaws and foibles and all the different things that make me human as well. So this book was basically uncovering the rock, like lifting it and letting all the little creatures scurry out from under it. Because there's a lot in this book that I had not disclosed. There was a lot that I write about in this book that I think most people wouldn't disclose, which is why I'm so proud of it. Um, And also why I am... (laughs) you know, why it was a polarizing thing to publish. That makes sense. That makes sense. And you ask beautiful questions. The central question you pose, like right at the beginning, is it more important to bury the truth of a dead man than to honor the truth of those who survived him? And this is what you're talking about. The majority of people, this is the question I get over and over when I'm teaching memoir or I'm talking to people about writing like how, how I can't, there's so many things I can't write about because this person is going to judge me or they're going to hate me, or I can't say this, or I can't openly disclose that. And we're so, we're so afraid of our audience, Yeah, which I think it's a completely natural thing, right? Where no one wants to be judged. No one wants to be. It's human nature. Of course. But the problem is, is you have communities of people who are unwilling to talk about things that are very universal. Yes. Um, And I think, you know, if there's one thing we learned from Me Too, it's that once people start talking about these very universal things, even when they're difficult, even when they're upsetting, you allow other people to do the same. And I think 
for me with this book, there was no, I didn't have an example. I didn't have, you know, there wasn't a widow's story that resonated with me at all. People were bringing me books and memoirs about widows. And, you know, I mean, I I have 17 copies of Year of Magical Thinking, which of course I'd already read. And, you know, it's like people bring you the same stuff, right? Right, They bring you the same condolence card and the same books and the same poems at the same funeral. It's like everyone has this sort of like stock responses to when things happen. And the thing is, is it's not that simple and death is complicated and we're all very nuanced. And if we're not telling various kinds of stories across spectrums, then we feel really isolated in our grief because we don't see it anywhere else, right? Like Mm -hmm. we're not seeing it televised. We're not seeing it sort of culturally discussed. So all of these stories are kept secret. Um, It doesn't mean that they're rare at all. It just means that there's not enough people willing to talk about them. So it was really important for me to write the book that I needed for myself. Yes. And you give permission to other people who are grieving in the same way um, not to feel shame. Yeah. Like death is hard enough. Grief is hard enough to like pile shame on top of that. And it's funny because for I for years, really, I felt like my experience, you know, people who lose like the love of their lives and they're in heavy, heavy grief um, for that loss. I always was like, oh my God, I feel like I can't even call myself a widow because I wasn't feeling those feelings. Mm-hmm. And then it like took me some time to realize like my kind of grief is harder in a lot of ways because you can't openly share how you're feeling, right? right? You can't, right. You're, you're feeling guilty for the actual feelings you're feeling, which is a terrible feeling to have when you're going through something like that, right? Is you're like, oh my God, I can't, I'm feeling this way, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not allowed to be. And then you start like spiraling and, you know, trying to figure out like how, what's the best way to grieve and does it become performative after that? And do you even know how you're feeling because you're not allowing yourself to feel those things? And a lot of people that I talk to and I've talked to after this book have, has come out, are basically just like living these sort of secret lives because they feel like they can't fully represent themselves as they are, as this happens. Like they're now defined by this thing. They're now this person that people feel sorry for, or like they feel weird dating or they don't know how to talk about it. Right. So they just like, it's like canned responses, canned responses. Um, I'd like to pay you a compliment because I don't think it's obvious that you would stick around and take care of him especially when you're estranged from someone like, I don't know that everyone does. Um, and I think that I think that that took a lot of heart on your part to stay and care for him. I just admired that. Thank you. I don't there was that was never, ever going to be something. I mean, I if I am if there's one thing that I could do as a wife, it's take care of like that's like it was the only time I felt like I was a good wife, if that makes sense. Yeah. And also, here's the thing, to be a caretaker to someone who's terminal is very different than to be a caretaker for someone who is chronic. And knowing that what kind of diagnosis he got, I don't know that I could have taken care of him for four years. Yeah, but four months. I don't think I could have. I don't know how people can, honestly. I have so much empathy and sympathy for people who are taking care of of anyone. Mm Mm-hmm specifically spouses, because I know a lot of people were and are in my situation who, as I've talked to them, who've had to take care of people who they were in difficult relationships with. And the kind of 
pain that, you know, and, and, and resentment and shame you feel for not wanting to do it and doing it anyway, to me would be paralyzing. I couldn't do that, but four months I totally could. And of course I would. And for, and him too, like, I remember when, and I wrote about this in my book, when, you know, when you're, you're, you have to choose your power of attorney and the, mm-hmm. you know, I was kind I wasn't sure if he would want me to be his power of attorney. I wasn't sure if he wanted me to make all the decisions for him. He didn't flinch. He's like, of course I do. And I think for all of the troubles we had in our marriage, it also speaks to the strengths that we had. And, and then he, he knew me, he knew me, yeah. we yeah. knew each other better than anyone. Right. That doesn't change the fact that we had conflicts, but I knew him intimately and deeply, probably better than anyone. And same with him for me. So he knew what I was capable of and the kind of partner I would be for him, even though we had our shit. And I think because of that, my book is sort of a love story. You know, you, you can have all of these things at once. You can have this shattered marriage and also have this beautiful love story and they're, they're all wrapped up in each other. So, mm-hmm. and there was love there. There was love throughout his death. And I still feel like there's love. I'll always love him. Obviously like, you know, it's complicated, Yes, but it's, it was, it was not again, like, I, I don't feel like anything that happened between us while he was alive through his dying and now is unusual I think my experience is probably like pretty standard. It's just not, again, like... We're not talking about it. It's it's so much easier when someone's on here just to remember all of the things that, you know, we loved about them. And we, we do this mm. with everybody. We make them saints and we, we speak only to their good qualities and the good memories. But there's a lot of pain in life and in mm. relationships. And um, why do you think we're supposed to represent people as good after they die? I think the idea that they're not here to speak for themselves and or to grow and to change and to get better means that we sort of leave that up to us to do that for them. Sort of writing their legacy. For sure. I mean, I I think there's survivor's guilt. I think we all have it. And I think when you feel guilty, you automatically sort of paint or push or edit people to be better than they were or kinder or mm-hmm. sort of go back and edit your own experience. It's, it, it makes you feel better about yourself. I mean, I think really all it, it comes back to that. We don't want to feel shame. We don't want to feel guilt. We don't want to feel pain. So we tell a story that keeps us from those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in Peaceful Exit, we talk about death openly and We talk about how in this culture, oftentimes someone would reach our ages without ever having seen a dead body. But it sounds like your story about death is very different. Death is something that feels very comfortable to me, almost comforting, because I accept that it's happening. It's going to happen to all of us. And that feels very freeing to me. I love cemeteries because I love this idea that we memorialize each other, that we put each other somewhere and then go there. And that it's, I don't know, I just, I I love the idea of... Um, you know, we always, whenever we drive past where my husband's buried, we're always like, that's where dad lives. And I love that there's just this place where like parts of him still are and you can just like hang out with parts of people. I don't know. I just, it yeah, feels very, yeah. um, it just feels ancient. It's like, we've been doing this since the beginning of time, right? We bury our dead. 
I love when you drive by the cemetery. You're like, hello, dead people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've always been like that. And when Hal was alive, we used to go to cemeteries all the time. Huge fans. And, you know, we do Dead Dad Day at the cemetery where we bring his favorite songs and we do like a dance party on his grave. That's sort of always been how our family rolls when he was here. Like we just sort of make it into a party. So we did the same with his funeral. He had, you know, we had his funeral at the Whiskey A Go Go, which is a music venue. Fantastic. Very famous music venue on Sunset, which at the time when my friend whose idea was, I do not want to take credit for it, it was totally her idea called to see if they would do a memorial there. They're like, sure. And we've never, <laughs> never done, done one there before. <laughs> but like, you can literally call up a concert venue and say, we're going to have, can we have a memorial there? And like, they could say yes. And then you're having a funeral at the whiskey. We had bands play and all of our friends, my son performed and our friends who were all artists, you know, did incredible performance art. And it was the coolest funeral ever. And I was, I was like, he would have loved this. Yes. So yeah. I mean, I, we talk all the time, me and my kids like, Oh, put that on my epitaph, put that on my headstone. That's how I want to be remembered. Make sure that that's, you know, play the song at my funeral. We talk like that all the time. And I think, you know, my goal is for them to feel comfortable with death and not afraid of it. Obviously, you know, they've lost one parent. So there's fear and some of them that I'm going to die all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have to be on call. I mean, I do not go anywhere and not have my phone here. They think I'm going to die. Some of them. Yeah. Um, which is totally normal. And so I try not to be like, I'm I'm fine. I'm not going to, you know, I, I tell them, yes, I'm totally going to die. You guys, I'm totally, yeah. <laughs> yes, you're right. Yeah. But you don't, you never know. And we should be prepared for it. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. I absolutely love that, that you have a family that's so open about it and you're accepting and you're all talking about it. That's fabulous. I mean, we still have like when Hal died, me and my son went through his ashes and picked out like the little bone, like rock, the rocky bone of the ashes, you know, the likes, like the, they look like little pebbles and we put them in little dishes and they're like all around the house, just like the dad's bones. Mm -hmm. And none of that feels weird to me. It feels weird that like, it's weird. <laughs> like, it's like... <laughs> I don't know. It's like this, the, the head in the sand, don't want to think about it. Don't want to talk about it. Like the idea of morbidity to me, doesn't make any sense. We're here and then we're not here. And it's as normal to not be here as it is to be here. And also like, I think, you know, I'm really into levity. I'm really into kind of having fun with these sort of difficult telling the truth. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be so serious. Like it, it doesn't have to be so dark. Agreed. Agreed. Well, I would love, love, love to read a passage of your incredible vivid language and then just see what comes up for you after I read this. Grief is nonlinear. It's sneaky and sharp like a serial killer in a movie where there's no warning, no suspenseful music, no screeching of violins. And one night, when you think you're fine and everything's fine and, oh, look at me living my life, thriving even, it's boom, bang. And then suddenly you're on the floor with no memory of how you got there. Grief put a roofie in your drink and now the room is spinning. Grief is supposed to be a Mack truck, but really it's a Prius with the lights off. No way to know it's coming until you're under its wheels. I think, you know, we sort of have this idea that something happens, something traumatic happens, and we immediately fall apart, and then we get better, and then we get better, and then we're okay. 
we need to believe there's like this three X structure to it or something. And that's never been my experience. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably very few of our experience. I think for a lot of us, especially the initial, when you have an initial trauma like that, you're in shock for that first year, maybe in those first three months, you're in survival mode if you're a single parent and grief hits you way later. And in times and places where you're absolutely not expecting it to, I will never have like the break, like cry myself to sleep breakdowns. I have breakdowns like at the grocery store or in my car, or if I see something like they're always out of nowhere. And mm-hmm. I, I think our, it's, it's almost like as soon as you, as soon as you like get to a, to a place, you're like, oh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. It's the universe, whatever. Like you just sort of like, uh, no, actually like it's, it's in there. Like you, you still have it in there. And I think we suppress so much mm-hmm. that like at, at a moment where we, we feel like we're free or open or like, ah, I'm good totally. now. It's yeah. like our bodies are like, okay, you're ready to have this feeling. Like, look at you. You're doing great. Okay. You can handle this now. Yeah. Yeah. My husband died five years ago and I'm just, I just started seeing a therapist three months ago. And I think I, I, I literally couldn't do it until now. Like I couldn't carry, I've been in such survival mode with my kids and raising my kids and making sure they're where they need to be that I haven't even really given myself permission to really sort of dig into those feelings. Mm. And so I finally, I finally am, but it's taken me five years, right? Like mm-hmm. taking me five years to really get into that. And, you know, it, grief is a, it's a lifetime thing. Like we don't just, get, I mean, and it's not even just, I think with death, I think a lot of people are grieving relationships forever and mm-hmm. grieving, you know, we're, we're grieving our youth. We're grieving our children growing up. I'm very deeply, heavily in this sort of anticipatory grief of my son going to college. And, you know, we don't talk about anticipatory grief either, which is very real. Oh, it's and real. Yeah. I have three kids, so I understand. <laughs> yeah. It's life is big and hard and full of changes and deaths, even non-physical deaths. And grief, you know, is, is like surprise. Yeah. I, it might be because I live in Seattle and the Pacific Northwest, but I absolutely love the scene on the Oregon coast, which is a great example of that. When you see your son go around the rock and disappear yeah. and it's like, and it speaks to sort of that incredible disappearance of death. And like the imagery in that scene is just so fabulous. Thank you. Yeah. I, you know, that feeling of like having no control, no power, not being able to see your kids. Um, it's intense. It's- is really intense. And I think before my husband died, I wasn't, I didn't have that as much. Like I was kind of really like, kind of trusted that everything would be okay. And I'm not a helicopter mom at all. Like nothing. I'm very okay with life looking like life looks. And that was the first time I had had that feeling where I was like, oh my God, like it's just me now. And I can't go after my son because I've got all these other kids with me and I'd be choosing him over them. And I became very aware of the fact that it was me and four kids Mm. and like the underneath all of the other stuff of, of grieving and losing, you know, a partner is, you know, suddenly I'm alone with four kids, which is, um, like every day it feels like, you know, it's like a Sophie's choice, right? It's like, I've had to choose whose performances to go to and miss the other ones. And, um, 
you know, so much of our relationship was the parental part of it where mm -hmm. we would divide and conquer. And now it's just me dividing and conquering with myself. Yes. Um, I have friends obviously who help and pitch in and stuff and like take my kids when I need them to, but my kids need a parent there. It's just me. And so there's a lot of grief in that too. And that, you know, he's missing all of this and that he can't be there for my kids and that it's just me. And I can't just go after one of them and leave the other three. Like I have to be with them all somehow at the same time, which is yeah. impossible. Um, and that is, you know, you know, as a mother, you want to be able to give them as much as they possibly can. And when you know that like all you have is so much and you can't give that to them, you're grieving a part of your, like, you know, what you want for them too. Yeah. So parents listening to this, um, what advice do you give around grieving with children? I, I have four very different children. Like, I don't know if that there could be four more different children. And I have four children who handled the death of their dad in four completely different ways. I think like in the, at the end of the day, children, people, all of us just want to feel safe and seen. And I think what was really important for me was giving them not like, not, first of all, I never didn't push them into therapy, any of them. That was an option for all of them. Two of my kids have been in and out of therapy since he died. The other two have done other things that were therapeutic, but have not been specifically in therapy. But we, first of all, like they were very involved in the funeral. They designed my husband's headstone. We had totems so that they all had necklaces with this totem for this turtle, which is a big part. If you read in my book, the mm -hmm. turtle becomes sort of the totem to his death. They, they designed a turtle headstone. They all had turtle necklaces that they wear. Some of them still wear them. Um, we, you know, we went on this trip to the Oregon coast right after he died, where we could come together as five, because we'd never been a family of five before we went from four to six. Cause I have twins. My last pregnancy was twins. So we were sort of establishing ourselves as a new unit and being mm -hmm. very aware that like, this is what our family looks like now. Um, we talk openly and honestly about him for better and for worse. You know, I had a complicated relationship. So did they, mm -hmm. um, he was, not an easy person to, to live with for the same reason he wasn't an easy person to be married to. So, you know, talking about their feelings, uh, but also not pushing them to talk about their feelings. They know that I write about this stuff very openly. Do they read your writing? None of them have read my book. Okay. Um, none of them have, have, have met, read my first book either. Even my son, who the book is about, they, you know, follow me on Instagram and see what I post and read my stuff. Sometimes they they know what my book's about, Yeah. but they don't, they don't feel the need to read it because they were there, they were there and they don't yeah. really care. Yeah. But I, you know, we, again, like we, we celebrate his birthday. We celebrate dead dad day, which is the day he died. You know, we listen to music that he listens to on his birthday every year. We watch his favorite movie. Like we, we definitely, you know, we acknowledge him. You keep his memory alive. We keep his memory alive. There's still pictures of him in the house. We crack jokes about it. Sometimes they like, it's good dad wasn't here. He would have hated this. You know, he he's still with us. We still talk about him. But it's, there's no shame around any feeling. None. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about him. You don't want to talk about him. 
I just love the advice of letting them arrive at their own timing and that you have four and they've all arrived at different times. They all sort of in their own ways grieved in this really beautiful, organic to them way. My son did not play piano until his dad got sick and he taught himself. And now he's like a genius piano. You know, his dad played piano every day, every day, our whole lives. And when he got sick and couldn't play piano anymore, my son went to the piano, 13 years old, started playing. And literally there's not a day that passes where he doesn't play. That's incredible. Like this is in them forever. Like this is a huge part of who they are. I mean, my little ones were just turned seven when he died. And my oldest was just turned 13 and he had his bar mitzvah literally weeks before his dad died. Wow. So as much as he was a part of their lives now, his, the lack of him is a real presence in their lives. And they find ways, I think, to acknowledge that in their art, in their work, in conversations. It's tricky. And again, like it, it's so fluid. They change. I change. You know, obviously some time has passed now. So we're very used to this is what our family looks like. And yes. this is who we are. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a, our grief, grief looks a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I love the scene where you're dancing to Prince. I think you were mm-hmm. putting, uh, you were filling his grave and dancing to Prince uh, with the yep. kids. And I just love how you let the kids metabolize their own grief um, in their own time. The burial, that was really important for me, for them to be alone in that for that reason, because I didn't want anyone to judge them for whatever it is that they were going to do. Obviously, like people aren't going to judge children based on how they handle their dad's death, but I wanted them just like free reign. And I ended up becoming like really close friends with the woman at Hollywood Forever. Her name's Noelle. She's incredible. And she was so amazing with my kids and my family and like really let us sort of create our own a la carte death experience. Let my kids drive the golf cart. You know, they designed the headstone, obviously. And for the burial, we, you know, we, we had him cremated and they buried his ashes. I, we kept some of the ashes to spread. I wanted each of my kids to have a vial of ashes to spread on their own. I wanted each of them to have their own individual experience with that. And then together we would bury the rest of the ashes somewhere we could come visit. Um, he had no plans for his body when he was dying. Wouldn't talk to me about it. He gave me no directions. So that was sort of my way. I was like, okay, I, we're going to figure this out, me and my kids together, which is why, like, it's so funny because, like, it's so obvious when you see, like, the headstone or, like, our, if you were at our funeral, that, like, this was a, this is a death that was planned by kids. It's so <laughs> But great. I love that. Like, yeah. it's like, that's, to me, that's, that felt right, especially because of the relationship that I had with him at the end. I was like, I wouldn't want my wife who wanted to leave, you know, like, pl- like, plan my shit. Like, I would want the people, you know, who didn't want to leave me. Yeah, yeah. So they were super involved, but we did this amazing burial. He loved Prince. You know, we had, I brought speakers to the cemetery, blasted Prince. And I didn't think they would do this, but they ended up doing the entire digging themselves. They dug his grave. They put all the dirt over the grave. I remember those, the guys were standing there like ready to do it. And then I was like, I don't think we need you. Like they're doing it all. And I have these pictures of them with their shovels and the music was playing and they were shoveling, um, you know, and they threw some stuff in there, some like artifacts, some guitar picks and a few like things, you know, that they wanted to bury with him. And it was like the most amazing 
burial experience. And then when it was all over, we all danced on his grave. Again, if there were people watching, we wouldn't have done that. We wouldn't have felt comfortable. They certainly wouldn't have felt comfortable with that. But because it was just us in the cemetery, like with our, you know, speakers, it was like, no, this is, and it felt totally right. And he would have totally, it was like what he would have wanted. Totally. totally. Well, and he gave you a gift by not planning, like giving you the freedom. I agree. Now I agree. At the time I was like, oh my God, like you couldn't have given me something. Cause I wanted, you know, you want to like, you want to provide for the person what they want. Of course. And so it's like really frustrating. I was super mad at him right after he died. I was like, how dare you give me no directions? But I think you're right. Like in, in retrospect, it was a totally a gift um, because we did a really cool thing. Mm-hmm. But what if we didn't have great ideas and we, you know, we would have. <laughs> Luckily, we had we're a fun group and had good ideas. You had great ideas. Uh so did the experience of Hal's death make you th- think about what you want at the end of your life? Um, and did anything change or surprise you over the last five years you've had to sort of metabolize your grief? And First of all, he, he had a very painful death. And I, I have sort of, I, I was angry. I was really angry with him for a while because he didn't give any of us closure, specifically his kids. Um, that was my biggest concern through all this obviously was them. And I was very frustrated that he did not give them anything. Yeah. And after he died, they were like, did dad leave me something or did he leave me a note or like a thing? I like, they wanted, they wanted something, which is why I, I became super into like making sure there was like some sort of symbolic thing they could hold on to um, because he didn't provide that. And I was so, I was so mad. I had friends who were like, you know, we'll film you speaking to your kids or, you know, all these people had volunteered to help make something. He refused to do anything. And so the entire time I was like, I'm never going to die like this. I'm never going to die like this. I'm never going to die like this. But then again, like I also, hopefully my death isn't an excruciatingly painful one where I have terminal cancer and I'm, I can't blame him. He was not, he was he was dying. Right. 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 So I try to like, I want to acknowledge that also like, I don't know. And we don't know. And, you know, we have plans, we have birth plans and death plans and think we know plans for everything. And then when it happens, obviously that all goes to shit because the reality is very different from the plan always. So I'm, I'm very aware of that. And I think that has made me like I talk to my kids all the time about death and like if I ever get to this place like I don't want to I don't want to live like this please don't keep me alive um I don't you know I I'm very I, I I'm so afraid I think of getting to that point I'm like please kill me first before I get to that point but no I I think for me it's it's more than it's taught me like how I want to die it's taught me how I want to live and what I, what I hope that by the time I get to the point of death, I'll be able to be, to not fight it and to be open and to accept it in a way that he didn't. Mm-hmm. His lack of acceptance and the way he refused to acknowledge it to me was like the most harmful part mm-hmm. and the most difficult part for me to navigate with my kids because you're watching somebody die and them saying, no, 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 I'm not dying is very confusing for a child. And then having to say, no, he is actually, 
And then him being like, you know, he was he was not comfortable with death ever, you know? Yeah. What does a peaceful exit look like to you? A peaceful exit looks like an acceptance and an acknowledgement of all that came before it. And not necessarily in like a, this is your life way, but I hope that whenever my time comes, I'm able to say, to like really sort of gaze into the eyes of, you know, all of my past selves and sort of celebrate them and thank them and acknowledge them and let them go. I want to, in this life, become comfortable with loss. I want to become comfortable with my own loss, with the loss of other people. And so I guess to answer your question, peaceful exit for me is just learning to love the feeling of letting go, even though it's painful, in spite of that. And maybe because of that, but sort of leaning into that. Yeah, yeah. It was such a pleasure to meet you. It was such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Peaceful Exit. You can learn more about this podcast and my online course at my website, peacefulexit.net. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know. You can rate and review this show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by Large Media. You can find them at larjmedia.com. Special thanks to Ricardo Russell for the original music throughout this podcast. More of his music can be found on Bandcamp.